we may never be able to um, completely remove it or or diminish um, utter edema completely. But, you know, what can we do to reduce the severity of it? A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like ICC Animal Nutrition, adding value to nutrition. Xzealot by Protecta, a novel product for the management of hypoglycemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. DSM, providing innovative feed additives that improve the efficiency and profitability of dairy production. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global dairy industry. When your goal is to help animals reach their full potential, health matters. Diamond V offers a fresh perspective on animal health a perspective that supports gut health, strengthens immunity, and ultimately enhances performance. For those who choose to invest in keeping healthy animals healthy, Feeding Diamond V makes a statement about another dimension of profit, where margins are measured by confidence in your future. To get a fresh perspective, visit diamondv.com, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. Welcome back to the Dairy Podcast Show. My name is Barry Bradford from Michigan State University, and today I'm very pleased to be talking with Cora Okuma, who is a colleague of mine at Michigan State. So Cora is a an MSU Extension Dairy Educator located in Macosta County, Michigan, serving the northwest part of the Lower Peninsula. She earned her BS in Animal Science from Dort College in 2016, and following that she briefly worked in uh, livestock nutrition before becoming the herdsman on her family's dairy farm. And she completed an MS in livestock behavior and welfare at Colorado State University and finishing up in 2022. So Cora, thank you so much for being a part of the Dairy Podcast Show. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. One thing I thought it would be interesting to talk through, you've taken a little bit of an unusual track, I guess. You finished your bachelor's degree, um, did some dairy nutrition work, you know, worked on your family's dairy farm for a while, then going back to graduate school and ending up in the extension. How did you step through that process? What what made you decide to to take that route, I guess? I think the great uh a great way to sum it up is life happened. Yeah. <laughs> and so life does what it does. And I necessarily did not have a plan after uh graduating with my bachelor's. Like I had been searching for jobs. I had been sending out resumes, talking with different companies. Initially, I wanted to go into the genetics side of things. So um, either uh, like working with select sires or something like that, but none of that really panned out. And I then met um, a company called AgriKing, a couple great individuals from there who took me under their wing. And that's how I started in the uh, dairy nutrition side. Um, realized sales was certainly not my passion in life. <laughs> and um, it happened at the same time where on my family's dairy farm, the current herdsman wanted to retire. And so I just asked my dad, I was like, hey, can I give this a shot? And it was something where I was like, I knew there was going to be a learning curve. I knew 
I was going to be overwhelmed and learn a lot and uh, not know everything. And I think the biggest takeaway that I had from that is I never stopped asking questions. I never stopped uh, wanting to learn and understand and figure out, you know, what's the best way to do this, whether it was for me, for the employees, for the cows, like, do we have to change up a system? Do we have to implement new protocols? Do, you know, we have to have trainings or all of these different things where it's like, what makes the most sense? And then going to graduate school, for me, it was a lofty dream where there was a part of me that said, you know, I want to prove it to the world that a small town dairy kid can get into grad school and, you know, do research because that was something where um, I'm a first generation college student and then coming from the dairy farm being like, yep, I can do research. Like I've been able to be in both worlds and doing my uh, master's was, who that was a whirlwind <laughs> to say the least. I learned to appreciate the frustrations that come with research and how difficult it is to perform high quality research and to really answer all all of the questions that you can come up with but no hey I can only tackle one at a time right. <laughs> which for me I was just like I want to answer 20 right away <laughs> but it was such an awesome experience because so much of my Practical work as a herdsman influenced how I approached research. I wanted to do, I wanted to focus on a topic that could be immediately applied to farmers. And it, it really framed how I set up my study, how I, you know, approached farms and went on farms and really, uh, really sorted out what I wanted to do, how I wanted to do it, and where I saw the value in the results and in all the information that I was learning. And so it was very helpful to be able to connect with the farmers and the employees and say like, hey, this is why we're doing this. Or yeah, I really don't understand why utter edema happens. The whole dairy industry really doesn't have a specific answer of like, yup, this is a pinpoint reason why it's happening. We're all just as curious and we're all trying to figure it out together. But it also taught me that in order to get to this grand answer that we all want to figure out, we have to start at the beginning. And so it's getting to the basics of like, okay, how prevalent is it? And how prevalent is utter edema? And, you know, what are the signs? What are we seeing? How are we able to... Uh, you know, develop a scoring system or how are we able to start noticing it and keep track of it and all, all of these different things. But um, yeah, it's, and then going from grad school to extension work, that was also kind of another dream where I was like, man, am I really ready for extension? Cause I was like, oh, I should get uh, some more industry experience before I step into extension. And I think that's a little bit of the imposter syndrome coming through, but um it has been such a welcoming community in the extension space, in the university space, and for my colleagues, but also other farmers that I've talked to where I had um, a sit down with one farmer and he's just, and he was 
um, talked to me about previous extension um, experience that he's had. And he said, I'm so thankful that um, there is another extension agent in our area that's serving our community. And he said, you can't ever expect yourself to fill that other person's shoes because you're your own individual and you bring your own strengths and passions to the industry. And I was just like, oh, thank you. <laughs> like, that's just what I needed to hear from a farmer. <laughs> so it's it's been a whirlwind of a track. I wouldn't trade it for the world because all of those experiences got me to where I am with my career today. Fantastic. That's, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So let's let's dive in now. You you brought up utter edema. That's that's a lot of what I wanted to talk about. So I'll I'll give you my perspective on it. So I, I work sort of on inflammation and at sort of systemic level and kind of the molecular biology of that to some extent. So occasionally someone will be foolish enough to send me an email or call me and ask me about edema. Like once a year, I'll get something about oh I have edema in heifers. Can you help? I solve this and I'm always like I don't know anything about <laughs> these calls emails and I'll try to dig in like you already said like what actually triggers this what, what has anybody figured out and I find almost nothing so when I learned you know before you came um, to start at MSU I you know been aware of the work you were doing and I thought it was fantastic that somebody was trying to you know build some solid underpinning of our understanding here so can you start off? There's probably other people that know very little uh, about this. Can you give us a bit of a primer to start with? So what did you learn about how common this condition is? Does it basically only happen in heifers? It, is it a problem for the animal or is it just something that happens and it's fine? Yeah, absolutely. So during... Um, while I was putting together um, my literature review, I was just... I was digging all the way back until I think the earliest I found. I, I think that'd be the technical chronological way to say it. I think it was in the 1950s okay. is when I had seen some form of a publication of utter edema. So it's certainly been around for quite a while, at least uh, 50 years or 70 years, at least 50 years. And the best theory that we have right now for utter edema. And let me explain what utter edema is first. Yep. So utter edema is a, um, it's essentially lymphatic fluid that is trapped within the tissues of the utter. It can spread towards the barrel or even up to the brisket and more severe cases. Um, it can also go up into uh, the hind legs up until uh, the vulva area, those are very extreme cases. Um, I've only seen maybe one or two that have been that bad. But um, I have seen, with my experience as a herdsman, which is what got me interested in trying to figure out what what is utter edema, what's causing it, I need to understand this. <laughs> and so... um. The theory that is out there, and it's been swimming around, and um, is that uh, it's the immature vascularity of a heifer um, when they're in that transition period, so three weeks before calving, that um, 
it, there's inadequate drainage of the venous blood that is coming to the mammary system and then trying to leave. And so all that blood is going to that mammary system for lactogenesis, so for the creation of milk, but there's still uh, utter development happening. And so you have just this major influx without the proper systems in place for the outflow of that blood to happen. So it's very much like a bottleneck where say you're going from an eight lane highway down to a four lane highway. It's it's slow. <laughs> it's going to take forever to leave that area. So that's the same thing. Well, wait, let's, let's unpack that just for a second to make sure we don't yeah, uh, lose anybody. So like you said, with, with rapidly developing tissue like this, this growing mammary gland, this developing mammary gland, a big piece of that that we sometimes can easily forget is the growth of new blood vessels, right? So, yes. And obviously, all that tissue growth requires a lot of oxygen and nutrients and such. And so there's got to be blood flow coming in, but then you also have to develop the venous blood flow leaving, right? And so, there, okay, so that's your point. And then the other piece I want to make sure we touch on is the lymphatic system. So if people haven't studied anatomy for a few years, maybe they've forgotten that that's sort of this other drainage system. And it's also tied in with the immune system, right? So we have lymph nodes. If you have swollen neck sometimes when you have a cold, that's a lymph node swelling up and that's connected to this network through your whole body. And that helps drain fluids that are not in the blood vessels, right? So it helps recirculate other fluids. Okay. So good. Yeah. This well, thank you. Fluid <laughs> accumulation, right? Some some disconnect between vascular flow of, of fluids and lymphatic clearance of fluids. Okay. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And um, <clears throat> what's really interesting that I figured out during my time reading was that the um, what common uh, terminology is called the milk vein, that actually isn't uh, formed in the heifers before they start milking. And so actually it's uh, created through anastomosis. And that was something that was just mind blowing to me. I was like, oh my gosh, no way. And that makes so much sense. So it's essentially like um, mending together okay. and, and merging together. That, that's the word that I was coming for. So it's just, it's it's it was crazy to me just learning about that and realizing like, oh, that's how that's made because like you don't think about it until someone points it out and you're just like yeah like heifers don't have milk veins when they come in (laughs) and and then you're just like oh but then you see a a second lactation cow yeah she's got it for sure and and then you're just like wow now it makes so much sense and that and then you're like okay now she has that eight lane highway (laughs) where it's where it's not as much of an issue but um, on that topic, though, when um, so heifers are at a greater risk for developing utter edema, and that is because of that immature vascularity. And um, then heifers, um, and this was found by Melendez, um, uh, I think it was 2006 is, is that uh, citation, Melendez 2006. They found that heifers that are calving in the wintertime, granted, this was done in Florida, by the way, too, so it could very much be different regionally. Uh, Heifers were 3.68 times um, at a greater risk of developing utter edema when they're calving in the winter. 
And um, they also found that at first test date, uh, heifers with utter edema have on average uh, 7.9 pounds less at that test date. So it certainly affects milk. And um, they're also at a greater risk for developing edema and later lactations. And that's commonly found throughout multiple um, sources where, you know, if they get it in the first one, more than likely going to get it in the second one. And that's a big thing right there because it um, deteriorates support structures. And when you have deteriorating support structures and you have low hanging udders and utter edema itself is a risk for mastitis. And it also (laughs) gets into utter cleft dermatitis, which is a risk for mastitis. And, um, it's just it's very interesting because utter edema is so interconnected with other things. Right. But there's no one thing where it's like, yep, this is it. And there was also some findings by um I'm not sure the pronunciation, but Kujori, I believe is the pr- pronunciation, but I may totally be wrong. It's K-O-J-O-U-R-I. Um, they were looking at um uh, biochemical um, serum markers and looking at seeing, you know, is there something we can see within uh, the serum that could help give us some sort of direction of why this is happening. And so they were saying that total protein, calcium, phosphorus, HDL, and LDL were all decreased in heifers with utter edema. And so I'm thinking, okay, that's liver that's um, like impairment of the liver that's happening right there. And then um, I also, um, Morrison et al. in 2018, that's the most recent research that's currently published right now from my understanding. They found that their um, heifers with utter edema had, um, there was a greater prevalence of subclinical ketosis in week two. Okay. in heifers with uh, utter edema. And so that was really interesting too, that I like there's multiple studies that are kind of leaning towards the same direction. And so it's utter edema affects the milk. It affects support structures. It um, It's a risk factor for mastitis and what's uh, ketosis. Um, but my focus was more on the welfare side of things where, you know, is this causing... Um, discomfort. And that's such a tricky field to start doing research in because you can't just immediately say, yes, it's painful because she's kicking. Like, right. Right. And, and that's the, that's the tricky part about it because cows do have a personality where just one may be more sensitive, one just may not be having it that day and same with people yeah but there's also um kind of an addition to fight or flight it's fight flight or freeze and so one of my one of the other graduate students um in my lab she was working on that side of things in in the scope of uh dairy heifers uh freshening and coming into the milking parlor where she was trying to figure out, you know, like, is a dairy heifer or first first calf, um, first calving cow, is that freeze response 
really a good thing. And because we're looking at stress, we're looking at all of these different things where, you know, it's a welfare and then production. Where is she actually letting down? Is that oxytocin getting into her system and providing adequate letdown so that one doesn't increase the risk of mastitis, but also she has continued longevity within the herd? And so it was really interesting seeing all of those different factors play into my research where um, currently it's it's unpublished right now, but um, going through review, so <laughs> that is promising. Um, but yeah, we, we found that um, uh, we were looking at first and second lactation cows and we, we did find that the heifers with edema did kick more and we were just looking at stepping and kicking and if they had edema and didn't have edema because we wanted to keep it very simple All right. yep. uh, because this is that first step in that direction. So if we we strongly felt that, you know, implementing a scale would, A, have taken a lot more time, taken a lot more animals, and we... We didn't know if it actually would have shown us anything worthwhile. And so we felt, you know, that would be the step two of that project where, yep, that'd be good for a PhD kind of thing. <laughs> and yeah, so it was very interesting. We we found that um, certainly greater number of kicks, but it wasn't conclusive in the fact that, yes, utter edema causes hef- like first lactation cows to kick more or step more. And so that was the frustrating part where I was just like, oh, you're supposed to just say yes. <laughs> but yeah, that's that is the nature of research that I learned where you have this intended result that you would like to get. Granted, you know, you can't frame your your research to get that and that hoped for result. But it really um it really enforced that utter edema is so complicated and it's one of those things where I feel somebody could spend their entire career on and we may never find the answer, but we'll get one step closer. And especially on like with, with your work in the inflammation and oxidative stress side, because it's been found that oxidative stress certainly plays into, um, utter edema and so i'm just thinking okay how do you take that and run with it and how do we get a greater understanding of of prevalence within uh the dairy industry because with my study 90.6 percent of cows in my study had utter edema how did you define that what was the threshold to cross to be defined as yeah this is edema mm-hmm. so it was, I used uh, the reference scale from Morrison et al. 2018, and she had a four-point scale. It was zero, one, two, three. So zero, no edema, one. That was my marker for, yes, it had edema, because that's when you saw the softening of the medial cleft ligament. Okay. Yep. And so that's when I'm like, yes, that fluid is there. And that led me... That led me to another question of like, okay, how much edema is actually present for us to start seeing it visually versus when it's actually forming in in the udder itself, where it's like, okay, how, like, 
how much volume of edema or volume of that lymphatic fluid needs to be there for us to start seeing it visually. And I thought that's just very interesting. And so my mind always comes up with all of these ideas and questions. And I feel like I need to just have a whole wall of <laughs> research questions. But the with with the prevalence of my study, it was it was so high, but it was very hard to find prevalence in other studies where either their research was, you know, they needed to have matched control and treatment animals, or they're just like, well, this is what we found. Um, like the the Melendez study, uh, they had they had a thirteen percent prevalence, um, but that was done in Florida, and I don't know what time of year they they did their study in. Where like certainly it seems to they had done a winter and summer season it seems like because they they had those numbers in their study but it's florida so that that's completely different region than it would be in michigan or or other areas of the united states um the morrison um at all 2018 study they were up in canada and um 70 of their uh, the cattle in that study had edema either um pre-parturition, post-parturition, or in both those stages. And so I was only looking at post-parturition. Okay. So in and there's and that's kind of what I've been able to find for prevalence, but it's it's a stretch to really find prevalence numbers in studies. And that's something where it's like, you know, it'd be nice to actually see how much utter edema we actually have across the U.S. or within states or with it, within the dairy industry because um, it is more prevalent in um, heifers and um, very common in Holsteins and Jerseys. Um, it's theorized that it's more, the appearance of utter edema is more severe in Jerseys just because of their short stature. Mm. Uh, but it's... It's paired genetically with um, milk production potential. So that is something that's also been um, proven in that sense, where if um, these heifers that are coming in have uh, great milk production potential or high high numbers for milk production potential, they are at a greater risk for developing utter edema, which makes sense. You're just like, you're genetically, this animal is primed to make milk physiologically right now. She's not ready for it. And, and anatomically, she's just not ready for it. And so it's just like her body's having to play catch up all the time and until her body can then regulate and just be like, OK, now anatomically, we're able to sustain what our genes are telling us to do. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, when you see a 90% prevalence, when you're looking at it carefully and like really looking for subtle signs of it. Yeah, what I wonder is if we're not seeing something that's basically always happening. It's just an order, a degree of magnitude, right? And um, uh, it's fascinating. Yeah, and I almost wonder if there'd be, uh, you know, you said it's been associated with increased milk productivity, but also associated with high production genetics. So I, I wonder if it's not like a very subtle mild edema actually would be correlated with high milk production, but if it gets extreme, it disrupts the problem mm -hmm. or something. I don't know. A lot of work to do. Yes. <laughs> certainly, certainly many, many questions to answer. So, <laughs> so I, maybe there's not 
anything that you can say because we don't know enough. But I wondered if there was a one or two key takeaways that like a herd manager um, could take away from all the, the work you've done, like to actually implement things around this topic of edema. Yeah. So the, I say the two big takeaways from my research that uh, managers could apply to their farms. One is, if possible, having a separate prefresh diet for your heifers and your mature cows, because your heifers don't need anionic salts. Like, they just don't. So, um, and it's the anionic salts that um, can contribute to development of utter edema. So that is, on a management side, that right there is something that could be done. Um and oh man <laughs> i think the second is that with other utter edema in my personal opinion it's gotten to a point where we may we may never be able to um completely remove it or or diminish um utter edema completely but you know what can we do to reduce the severity of it, whether it's applying a liniment or making sure that there is comfortable bedding or because these cows are lying down all the time. And if you're lying down and then you have all that pressure, it's like you're you're cutting off or at least slowing down that supply. And yeah, looking and um, also, yeah, with um, heifers, you know, good body size, but not obese and maintaining that um, body condition score of those heifers coming in, body condition score and age, because those are also factors too, where just like in mature cows, if they're coming in fat, you're going to have greater risk for metabolic problems. And sure, that's the same thing in heifers, where if they're coming in um, with greater levels of body condition, older, they're they're certainly carrying their condition well. <laughs> um, it, that's something too, where you know, that's something a lot of managers already look for. It's like, that's another thing to keep in mind where it's like, hey, that's something where if we want to prevent this from potentially causing problems, lactations down the road, that's something to think of too. All right. Switch gears just a little bit. Um, one of the topics that's come up more and more frequently in the last few years, especially around the pandemic, right, is mental health. And I understand that that's a topic you're passionate about. And just curious, what what has led you to spend some of your focus uh, time on this topic? Yeah, so I I have utilized mental health resources quite frequently with what I'd say within the past um, <clears throat> three to four years. Uh, fortunately, uh, Colorado State University has. Um, a couple of programs in place uh, that promote the usage of mental health resources, and they they have provision of those resources for uh, graduate students. And <clears throat> I was able to very much manage my stress and understand uh, what are healthy uh, coping mechanisms for stress. But a big thing too is what are um, examples of healthy communication to have with. Um, other people, but also it really helped fight the stigma that, you know, people only go to uh, a therapist when they have problems. 
And I proactively went to um, a therapist because I was like, I want to help give myself the resources, the tools, um, the skills in order to manage my stress levels, in order to, um, you know, complete this degree on time, which COVID happens. <laughs> we all know we all know what happened there. But uh, yeah, and I, I util I still utilize uh, therapy today because you know life happens. Like I had yeah. said before, life happens, and whether it's uh, family dynamics or relationships or friendships or work stressors or you know all these other things that could be impacting your life. Um, one, it helps to just get it out. Uh, that's a big thing for me, but two, it's, you're going to someone who's been trained in this profession to help understand you and help give you, um, give you a different perspective of what's going on to help you think through it. And that's stuff where I really appreciate it, where someone's like, well, what about this? Like, let's think about it this way. Or have you heard about this method? And I'm like, oh, no, like, tell me more. Or they're just like, um, yeah, it's there's <laughs> I'm just kind of going through all that, all the, um, the sessions that I've had with my therapist. And she's she's absolutely phenomenal. And sounds a little bit like uh, like taking a proactive approach to like equipment maintenance at, instead of waiting until your uh, tractor completely breaks down and you can't feed tomorrow morning uh, yes. before you call somebody in, yeah. right? Yeah, your your brain your brain is the thing that runs the rest of you. Yeah. And if you, and if for most of us, I mean, we've all met a few right. On- <laughs> ideally (laughs) so like with motivation and discipline and understanding the way the world works and other people and relationships it's with farming especially that was the hardest hardest job i had ever done because you are asked to do so much and it has to be perfect or something is going to get the negative side of it whether it's the cows the calves the employees the equipment or you know you're gonna make your day go an hour longer like me who left open a gate and i was just like oh gosh now i have to go catch cows or it's like oh i forgot to put this one cow in the chute now i have to go bring her all the way back around all of that where it's um it's so stressful and you feel like you can never catch a break sometimes yeah and especially with farming, it it is it is still a taboo topic and there's a lot of stigma around it. And I think that's a generational thing. But with my generation I and um generations younger than me, it seems like therapy is something that you do on the more proactive side of things where it's just like openly talked about and it's just like oh yeah i met with my therapist or oh yeah i'm looking forward to therapy today and it's just taken in the sense of like oh yeah i'm gonna go do my oil change now or yeah i'm gonna go do my yearly checkup with my doctor and 
me talking so casually about it is I make a point to do that because it's just like, yeah, it's okay. Like it's nothing to be, to have any shame about because you're taking care of yourself. And if you aren't taking care of yourself, you know, you're going to burn out. You're going to get exhausted and stressed to a point where you can't fulfill the responsibilities of the farm or of the job that you're trying to do. Yeah. And I think one of the values of, of talking about it more routinely is, um, you know, if you, if you go meet with a producer that is, is really hitting bottom, that's not a time when people are necessarily right. very open to new suggestions, right? Right. You're kind of in a mm-hmm. feeling like trapped. And if somebody bring you all, you almost hesitate to bring it up because they might be offended by it. Right. Whereas if you're just kind of right. out there all the time, maybe somebody is more receptive at some point before they sort of hit bottom. So I, I appreciate your efforts on that. So uh, one other point of emphasis for you um, that you brought up is, is working to engage with consumers, right? So, um, and uh, obviously you're, you're only like a, you're less than a year into this role. I, you know, <laughs> we know you're just sort of building what your areas of focus are going to be, but I, I'm curious, like, if you were given an opportunity to really get in front of some consumers, is there one insight about the dairy industry that you would hope to transmit to them or to share with them? Oh, I think the kind of overarching topic that I would share with consumers is that the majority of dairy farms are still family owned and operated. Um, that is such a big connecting point where when I have conversations with folks out in public, they're just like, oh, you're a dairy farmer? And they're just like, what? And most people assume dairy farmers are, you know, 60, 70-year-old men who are just wearing their coverall bibs and walking around. Draw hat. Don't forget that. Yeah. (laughs) We need the pitchfork, too. Um, and they're kind of taken aback, like, wow, okay, tell me more. And being really, um, really open with, with sharing that, yes, this is a a family effort. It's our passion. And there's so many things that we do to care for our animals. Granted, you can't just start saying, oh, yes, sand bedding is good to keep these cows dried. You know, all these very technical things that we know, but really giving them, like, kind of skewing the top of <laughs> of that conversation where it's just like, we care what we do and we strive to create quality products. And it's products that are safe for us because we wouldn't we wouldn't produce a product that's not safe for us let alone safe for other families to consume and we put so many proactive measures in place for those protections that we want to ensure no matter what that is a good quality product that it's safe for families safe for anyone all ages but also Products that can be made to serve different communities where some folks are um, sensitive to lactose. So, you know, lactose free or A2A2 milk or all of these other um, <clears throat> like milk products that 
um, can be created or processed in a way to to serve those communities or, you know, let's create some yogurts or like the Fair Life milks or all of these different things that really can meet the needs of the people where they're at. And that's something that I I love seeing the fascination and aha moments, especially in kids' eyes when they're just like, wow, like that's a cow, that's so cool. And and uh, sending my friends like pictures of a newborn calf and um, social media presence is huge too. And so um, a lot of the content creators out there just um, – creating videos and educational posts and i've i've made a few of those myself and and sent to some people and they're just like wow like it's crazy to see how relaxed these cows are around you and i was like yeah and that's the payoff of calm low stress handling they literally don't care that you're there (laughs) as long as you feed them they don't care (laughs) yeah excellent it's time for our famous three the Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like your partner for improving animal performance, Berg & Schmidt, Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. AB Vista, feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function. AB Vista helps dairy producers maximize their herd potential with feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function and overall animal health. From young calves to lactating dairy cows, AB Vista is here to combine industry-leading products and optimal feed strategies to increase your ROI. Okay, well, we've got three questions that we ask of every guest. It's been interesting yeah. to hear the variety of answers I've gotten so far. So, first of all, what is your favorite dairy-related book or resource? Um. I had to make sure I wrote these down <laughs> so I remember them. Um, so a dairy-related book is actually uh, The Welfare of Cattle by Bernard Rowland. Okay. And I had the esteemed pleasure to uh, take his ethics course. And um, unfortunately, it was the last ethics course that he had taught um, before he passed away. But... Uh, just getting into that man's mind is it's a who he's he's hilarious as he's hilarious as a person and a complete character but he has such a passion for animal welfare and really uh pushed um push buttons for sure yeah but also really he asked the hard questions and he wasn't he wasn't afraid to um, step on a number of toes <laughs> in order to really, you know, say like, hey, is this the best way that we are we can do this? And uh, just a lot of valuable information uh, from that man, but also uh, what he has uh, produced and published. Okay, that's that's a new answer. I like that. Yeah. What about your favorite book or resource outside of agriculture? Um, outside of agriculture, I'd actually say it's, uh, the Jocko podcast and it's one, I, I love listening to like military stories. And so they, they bring in a lot of guests that have uh, military experience, 
but it's all framed on leadership and uh, personal development. And so a lot of great talking points, but fascinating stories that just wrap you in completely and you're just like, I'm there. (laughs) And so very, very interesting. Um, But on a less serious side, um, there's a podcast called Stuff You Missed in History Class. And so those are a lot of fun stories where you're just like, oh my gosh, how did I never know about this? (laughs) You learn a lot real quick. Those are good. I've heard multiple people talk about the Jocko podcast. I'll have to look that one up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Last but not least, in in your opinion, what sets a successful dairy professional apart from those who may not be so successful? As someone who went through one of the steepest learning curves of a herdsman probably in all existence, being flexible in meeting people where they're at, whether it's employees or any anyone that you're working with. Um, but surrounding yourself with a team of individuals that will stand by you no matter the outcome of a decision that you make. That is a big one right there because um, I heavily relied on um, the veterinarian, the nutritionist, our breeder, uh, my dad, and and other um, individuals, that other trusted individuals that I ask questions constantly of just, you know, what should I do here? What's the best course of action? Or, hey, I really want to try this, all of that. But also, I was there when our farm went through um, our expansion. And so brand new milking parlor um, added about 150 cows. And so just a lot of things happening at once and the willingness to embrace change, even though it's scary. That's, that's a big one. (laughs) Yeah. Very good points. That's terrific. Well, Cora, thank you so much for being part of the dairy podcast show. Uh, It's been an excellent conversation. I've enjoyed it very much. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And it is a special interest to me and I could talk for hours on it probably, but it's it's been a pleasure to speak on all of my passions today and um if anyone has any further questions uh, feel free to contact me very open to it and uh, any resources anyone wants definitely let me know all right well thanks again cora okuma from michigan state university and uh if you haven't subscribed yet don't forget to subscribe to the dairy podcast show so you can catch all these episodes and with that we'll sign off thank you